Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this day and time to you when we can gather together to worship you. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God and a loving Father. You have given us the most precious gift of all, the gift of love through your Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption by grace through faith. Nothing that we did to deserve it. It is your unconditional free gift to us. May we always be grateful and remember this wonderful, holy, blessed, and perfect gift every day of our life. We ask that you open and humble our hearts to receive your word as it is preached by Pastor Steve, with boldness and clarity to help us in our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, we have a lot of family in town. We, we always lose some, but it seems like we gain just as many. So welcome this morning, and from us and from the elders and deacons and the membership of Highlands right here at the front end, we wish you a Merry Christmas. And what we mean by that is that you would know the love of God in His sending His Son for you and the joy that we can have because our sins are forgiven, because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ which regardless of what we face in this life then, we can have hope because this isn't the whole story right here. And so these candles represent truths, gifts really, that come by knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So when we say Merry Christmas, we mean a Christ-centered holiday. And I really hope um, that you enjoy both the sacred, the religious aspects of this holiday and the secular, the lights and the eggnog and everything else that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, that you would enjoy those too because time with family and time off from labor is a gift of God, so we can enjoy that. This will be a little different this morning, and our children are not dismissed for their own lesson, so I wanted to add sort of a more pictorial guide to what we're going to talk about. And what we're talking about is the fact that the manger is empty. We don't 
continue to sentimentalize or immortalize Jesus as a baby, the reason we don't do that is because the grave is also empty. Jesus Christ, as a man, as a sacrifice for our sin, rose from the dead. So both of those are empty. So the question I want to ask this morning is, who is the baby in the manger? Who is he? And why is he such a big deal? Because he is a big deal. The gospel story, and simply, and I'm going I'm to try to talk to our young people, maybe our children, probably a little, little above that, to our young people this morning, because um, I want you to understand really what is going on, not just globally, but universally, or we, or we could say eternally. The gospel means good news. And the gospel story, the good news story, is a lot bigger and better and grander than most people have ever imagined. Here is what this means. This is the baby in the manger. Uh, John 1.14 says this, The Word became human and made His home among us. Which indicates already that at one point, He was not human. He took upon Himself something He had never been before. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God entered into time. By the way, He created time. He never had a period of existence where it was marked by a succession of moments. Now he enters into time and arrives very much like you and I did. And how did we arrive into this world? Screaming, right? As a baby, maybe at peace. I have no idea how you arrived, but that's how nobody nobody got here a different way. Think about that. Young people, think about that. We all arrived the same way, and the eternal Son of God chose in humility to arrive the same exact way that we did. And the big question, and and young people, here's the question this morning, why did He do that? Why did God, who needed nothing, who enjoyed everything, humble Himself and become a baby dependent upon a young lady? Well, he didn't come to be adored as a baby or to be cuddled or to be sung to. He came because of a specific mission. He came to be a champion king. And he's more than just a champion king. He is this, this is what Revelation says. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now think about that title. There are people even right now who who try to take to themselves an ultimate dictatorship, but they are not ultimate leaders. They might bear the title king, they may have the title president or queen, but there is one that stands above them, and he is a lord of lords and a king of kings. He is a champion king, a supreme ruler, a king with absolute authority. Matter of fact, in Revelation 19, we see this uncontested champion king riding on a white horse In his identity, we're given a hint. It says in Revelation 19.13, the name by which he is called is, listen to the title, the Word of God. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh, became a human, and made his home among us. I want to explain by reading seven chapters before Revelation 19, where we are given an identity of this king, another passage full of color and imagery 
And it's a passage and a picture that will help us understand what's going on. Because this story that you're about to hear this morning has been told in its own way around the world in thousands of different languages, in thousands of different cultures, and it sort of has that same theme, kind of like a Hallmark movie, right? There's there's no surprises with a Hallmark movie. But men, and I I see memes about this, we kind of make fun of the, the Hallmark movies, your action films follow the same exact plot and theme and conclusion. And this story is told throughout the world. Here's our culture's version of it before we look at Revelation. Chronicles of Narnia. Ultimately, four children led by one Peter Pevensey against Jadis the White Witch, but really Aslan the Lion is on their side, and the end is what? Everything seems to be, to be a failure, but Aslan doesn't die, and Peter Pevensey is king. The Lord of the Rings. The future of civilization rests on the fate of a young hobbit named Frodo Baggins. He has to destroy the one ring that rules them all, and he's got to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom where it was forged, but he has to do so against a relentless onslaught of evil by orcs, but ultimately Lord Sauron. How does the story end? Victory. Star Wars, Luke Skywalker in the force against Darth Vader and the Emperor and the dark side, Harry Potter, a young boy wizard against the dark and powerful Lord Voldemort. This story has been told thousands of times. Shakespeare tells similar stories. The Greeks told similar stories. The Persians had similar stories. The Egyptians had similar stories. Let me read to you Revelation 12, verses 3 to 5, to show you sort of where some of this imagery comes from. A matter of fact, and this will surprise some of you, John actually borrows from the ancient myths that other civilizations told. John is telling this story after the Persians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans had their versions of this story. Let me read to you the, the text. Revelation 12, verses 3 to 5. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. I want you to consider this, and, and in the backdrop, I want you to remember this baby who's being placed in a manger. The seven heads probably refer to seven world kingdoms on this dragon. The ten horns, horns referred to power and prestige, most likely refer to human kings indicated by the seven crowns on his heads. The one-third of the stars most likely refers to the one-third of angels that followed Lucifer in his rebellion in heaven. This dragon is described in Revelation 12 as standing in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The male child refers to Jesus. We know this because it is Jesus Christ who is described as ruling with a rod of iron. Let me keep reading. He was ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 gives a prophecy that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would do that. 
but her child was caught up to God and to God's throne. So again, you have, just like Revelation 19, this, this, this uncontested king on a white horse who is called the Word of God, you are now given his identity. This baby that the dragon wants to devour will rule with a rod of iron, but he was caught up to God and to God's throne. Why does the dragon desire to devour the child? And here's the answer. Because of his identity, he is the Son of God. And because of his mission, the work that he came to do. Why such imagery and symbol? Matter of fact, Revelation 12, uh, by the world, by an unbelieving, hostile, secular world, has been called international myth. The reason is because that story that I just read to you out of Revelation 12, as we've said, is echoed throughout civilizations. Let me give you an example. In Egyptian religion, the mother goddess Isis was pursued by the red dragon Typhon, who has a hundred heads. He is the father of all monsters. She flees to an island where she gives birth to the sun god Horus, who becomes a champion. In Ugaritic mythology, the storm god Baal defeats the seven-headed serpent Leviathan. In ancient Babylonian uh, religion, they taught that Marduk, the god of light, kills the seven-headed dragon Tiamat, who had thrown down a third of the stars. Are you seeing the similarity? Greco-Roman myth held that the goddess Leto, pregnant with Apollo, is pursued by the dragon Python. She is rescued by Poseidon, who places her safely on an island. After Apollo is born, he seeks out and slays Python. Can you see the similarity in these stories? Why does John seem to borrow so heavily from pagan mythology? In missions, there is, there is a term that is used and, and what wise cross-cultural workers need to identify. It is called redemptive analogy. And that is simply this, that within every culture, among every people, there are truths that echo eternal truths. There's a reason these stories are being told, and there is a reason John borrows them because of a redemptive analogy. All these stories are telling you something true about this world. They're not all truth. The details are not all truth, but they're telling you in a big picture a truth about what is going on in the world. And here's what civilizations feared throughout the centuries, a type of evil dragon and dark kingdom. Here is what they celebrated and longed for in their myths, a divine champion. Here is where the gospel connects with these. Yes, there is a a dark world. I mean, matter of fact, Satan is called the prince of this world. He offers to Jesus in the wilderness kingdoms as though he can give them. The gospel is also realized in the true divine champion, Jesus Christ. John wrote Revelation. Now, last week we looked at John's account of the gospel, but John also wrote Revelation, and in it he includes signs. The woman and the dragon are signs. Now, signs convey important information. If you were to visit us in Zambia, this is important information, right? We're in Colorado. You might go to a reservoir and just jump in Please never do that in Africa, 
Okay, if it's not the hippos, it's the crocodiles. If it's not the crocodiles, it's, it's the class six rapids. So signs convey important information. Do not swim, right? You didn't even have to know what this meant. If you just look at the signs, you're like, oh, I think they're telling us to swim with the hippos. No, you already, you knew without any text, do not swim because this herbivore will actually decapitate you. I told you this was for young children, right? Okay. (laughs) Signs convey meaning. Last week we looked at John. He gave us seven signs. We're not going to run through those again. But those seven signs, changing water into wine, feeding of the 5,000, the healing of a crippled man, now John uses another sign, a woman and a dragon. What is the purpose of a sign? Well, just like do not swim with hippos, look at one of Jesus' miracles, the changing of water into wine. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Why? It revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Signs are provided to you so that you do not lose your way. John 20, 30, 31, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, before we explore the signs in Revelation 12 further, I want to go back all the way to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, then look at the first book of the New Testament, and then finish up again in Revelation. Eternal God created mankind. God existed before there was anything else. And his eternality is difficult to understand because it's not something anyone in this room has experienced personally. We've never experienced eternality. We've had a starting point. We celebrate kind of that starting point on our birthday. That is our beginning. So to to sort of comprehend eternity is very difficult for us. God lives in infinite and unending time, but also lives within time. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How do we comprehend eternity? Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you went to the Sahara Desert, and you took a single grain of sand, and if it were possible, you were able to get into a spaceship and fly a million years away, and you put that speck of sand down onto a planet, and you flew a million years back. One speck of sand, two million years. You took another speck of sand, a million years there, a million years back, another speck of sand. You did that with every desert. You did that with every beach. And when you were done doing that with every single grain of sand, I want you to think about it like this. Eternity, that is one second in eternity. The problem is we're still trying to understand eternity with time. But that helps you understand the length and the magnitude of what we are talking about. God existed before anything else did. He created everything on earth and in heaven. And this is where the the Bible begins. It says this in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created stars. He created things you cannot see. 
Do you know what some of those things around the birth narratives of Jesus Christ? Consistently, you will see certain beings showing up. You will see angels and the angel Gabriel. He's created things you can't even see that are created. They're not even God. God also created everything we can see, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the oceans. And God created, and it really is the pinnacle of his creation, and it shows the value that every boy and girl, every young man, young woman, every man and woman has, is he created you in his image. And when he did that, he did something that he hadn't done in, in any of the other creations. He gave us a soul that would never die. That means there's something that exists in you this morning that will live forever somewhere. So you're wondering why the angels themselves rejoice when this baby is born. You wonder why wise men from the east, most likely Persia, travel because they see his star. Because there is something within you that must live somewhere forever. That's how God created us. So the eternal God, who's from everlasting, steps into time as a baby and grows into a man to solve the problem that we face. When God created everything, he said it was very good. Let me ask you, in your last seven days, wherever you've been, at your workplace, at school, in the mall, on the road, is everything very good? The answer is no. And we don't have to look any farther than within our own homes to realize everything is not very good. God gave the man and woman a beautiful garden to live in. Genesis 2, 8-9 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the best part about the garden was not how it looked. I tried to find an image for the garden, and, and every one of them was underwhelming. Because this place was beautiful. But the best part about the garden is that Adam and Eve walked together with God without any hindrance. Nothing interrupted their fellowship. And here's the other beautiful part. Adam and Eve walked together and lived together without any hindrance. Without a single argument, without a a single look of frustration, That's the Garden of Eden. That's paradise. And God gave them a special command because He's the Creator. He gives gives them this command. One, only one rule to obey, to establish the boundaries of the Creator-created relationship. He says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Don't forget that. We sometimes focus on the one restriction. Remember what this garden probably looked like. You can eat from any tree you want. It's all yours. Except how many? Except one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God created us with a close relationship with Him, a close relationship with each other, but it hinged on obedience to a single command. And guess what? For those of you who hate authority, God gets to say that because He's God. He's God. 
Do you remember the angels God created? One of those angels became proud. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. But there's only one God to be worshipped. Therefore, God cast the disobedient angel out of heaven. That angel is called Lucifer, or by his titles, Satan or the devil, or by images. We never read the word Satan or Lucifer in Genesis chapter 3, but we do hear this. And the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that God had, what's the next word? Made. Don't forget, we're not in this sort of competing dualism, dark side, the force. It is God and his creation. Images like the serpent or the dragon, God cast out of heaven also the angels who followed Lucifer. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he was on earth, and you see the verse on the screen, Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples who came back from a mission, and they had seen God do some pretty fantastic things. And Jesus says, no, no, don't glory in that. Don't glory in your work of ministry. Don't glory in your own personal power. For I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You want to see a display of power? I have seen Satan fall out of heaven. This helps explain who the baby in the manger is. Because for Jesus to say, remember what he said, he's on the earth, he's probably about 30, 31 years old, and he looks at his disciples who are similar in age to him, and he says, I saw Satan fall out of heaven. That gives us an answer in part to who the baby in the manger is. He's not just a baby. Matter of fact, Isaiah says, When he grew up, there wasn't even anything attractive about him. There was no form or comeliness that we should say, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He was very ordinary. He even took an ordinary name, Jesus, the Old Testament Joshua. So there's nothing in sort of the birth narrative about the infant to be immortalized because that baby at one point saw Satan cast out of heaven. And that baby came and arrived for a specific purpose that is attached to Satan being cast out of heaven. One day Satan, who took the form of a serpent, said to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman responded, no, we may eat of any tree except for the one in the middle of the garden. If we eat from it or touch it, we will die. The devil told her this, You won't die. You know, for the first time, Eve began to question whether God could be trusted or not. Matter of fact, he added this, a little sort of little flattery, a little deception. You won't die, but 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 will instead become like God. Oh, that tree that's off limits in the center of the garden? That's your key to real living. And young people, some of you will believe that lie in this world. That which God has said is off limits, you will think is the key to fun and success and enjoyment. For the first time, Eve questioned God's character, his goodness, and his promises. And the woman listened to the lies of the devil and ate the fruit, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate. And guess what happened? they started to die. Physically, they started to die, and eternally they died because the wages of sin, the payment 
For sinning is what? It's death. So let me ask you, young people, who was telling the truth? The serpent or God? God was. Sin is both our nature from Adam and any time we disobey God's commands. We have it by nature and we have it by our own choices. And sin results in a broken relationship with God. And since God is righteous and holy and we are now sinners, matter of fact, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then what is the way forward? What is the hope and the joy and the love and the peace of the holidays? If we're sinners and we cannot have a relationship with God, what is the way forward? Because in this condition, in a sinful condition, we cannot live with God forever, but you will live somewhere forever because that is how God created you. What hope is there? In Genesis 3.13, God says to the serpent, which is the, the dragon of Revelation 12, he says to the serpent, there will be born a male child, and, and God is talking to the serpent, and this child will crush your head. And, and it's kind of hidden in, in our English language, but the idea of bruise his head, that, that the serpent will actually do something to the heel of Jesus, which is not a death blow, but the death blow is what Jesus delivers to the serpent's head. A human man will strike a complete, conclusive death blow to the serpent dragon's head. That's a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and so this is the story of the Old Testament. It is predictive prophecies, and it is a narrative to tell you there is a Messiah coming. Messiah simply means an anointed one, a rescuer, a deliverer, a champion, and it will be God's own son. This, this is what 39 Old Testament books build towards. It builds us towards the four Gospels. Just two specific prophecies, just to show you that, that we're not asked to believe something mythical or fanciful or speculative. Approximately 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah said, a ruler of Israel who was from everlasting would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.1 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 3 to 6, Herod the king inquired of the chief priests and scribes of the people where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And then in Matthew chapter 2, the chief priests quote Micah 5, verse 2. And they say this, But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Isaiah 7 it's, a, it's an interesting context, but a sign is given, and it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know that that means what? God with us. And how are you going to know that child arrives on the scene of history? Because he's going to arrive like no one else did. Not even Cain and Abel arrived like this. By a virgin conception. And in Matthew's gospel, he uses these exact words, interpreting Isaiah 7.14. He says in Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. 
from the Holy Spirit. Now, a sign of that kind demands an unusual circumstance. So when that happened, that was the sign that this Messiah champion king arrived. Now, the birth of God's son, Jesus Christ. This is what the angel told Mary in Luke 131. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. The prophet Isaiah said, there's nothing incredible about this one, but but his mission is revealed in his name, and the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So when this baby is born, he came on a saving mission. That's not only his identity, it is his work. I want you to notice Matthew's order of importance. Matthew and Luke are the two that record the birth narrative. And I want you to notice something about the order of importance. And I'll explain it this way. If your mom asks you what you want for your birthday meal, you can have anything you want, your favorite meal, what would you start with? Some of you wisely would start with broccoli, (laughs) right? You would say, this is my one big day of the year that marks my entrance into the earth, my first breath. Thank you, mom and dad, right? This is your four-year-old expounding on what he wants for for his first meal, and he says, I would like steamed broccoli. How many of you young people would say steamed broccoli? Good, good. The whole Ross family, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And Cole. Cole, you have some friends on the other side of the church over here, okay? Now, most of you, and I respect this, would start with what? The cake, right? Right? (laughs) The cake. And then you would move to the main meal, right? So whatever that would be. There's an order of importance, and we use this in in our language all the time. I want you to see Matthew's order of importance. Whenever Matthew, who presents Jesus as king, mentions Jesus and Mary, I want you to notice who he mentions first. Matthew 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with who? The child... Oh, and his mother, the angel said. 2 verse 14, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. In verse 221, so Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. This does not mean Mary is unimportant. She's actually very important. She had a very specific, unique, one-of-a-kind mission in all the earth. But this will help you understand. Mary is important, unique among all women. But it is the child that is lifted up and made big. Wise men from the east come and worship the child. Matthew 2.2 says this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Matthew 2, 11 and 12 says this, and going into the house, listen to the wording, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, Mary's present, and they fell down and worshiped him, not her, but the child. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They do not fall down before Mary, 
They fall down and offer gifts to Jesus. Why? Because the baby in the manger is the eternal Son of God, the champion King, who alone, the only mediator, who can solve our problem of sin and give us peace knowing where this eternal part of us will live forever. Now, the defeat of Satan and the forgiveness of sin is where we'll end this morning. The devils, and we're not going to go out of Matthew 2 yet because Matthew 2 covers a very sad story and it's going to show you this dragon, this serpent, the devil's murderous nature. Shortly after Jesus is born, the wise men come in and they ask where this king is going to be born. And Herod, insecure, violent, and murderous, tries to set a net to kill this this king, this rightful king. The event about Herod killing all the male children two years old and younger is actually, it is horrific, but it actually is going to help you explain again why Jesus came, why candy canes and lighted trees and presents don't really even begin to tap into this universal story that's being told. He did not arrive to make the world perfect, but to save us from sin. In Matthew 2, 16 and 18, I'm just going to read this without much detail. Then Herod became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. There's no Herod in your nativity set if you have one set up. Though he plays a very important part. There are no other figures that sort of explain this dark spot of this story. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. See, see, this didn't take God off guard. He's not out of control. He actually prophesied that this would happen to highlight the need for Jesus Christ, our Savior. It was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The Christmas narrative is not the first time that Satan had incited someone to murder innocent children, and sadly it's not the last. And the most recent and something we are becoming numb to is the abortion epidemic that is going on. And behind that stands a dragon. And here's what Satan, Satan would love for you to believe he's a myth. Satan would love for you to believe he's still the number one costume at Halloween. There's another side of Satan who wants you to worship him, who wants you to bow down and serve him, who wants you to do exactly what he got Eve to do in the garden, to doubt his goodness, doubt his power, doubt his promises. I want to look back at Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 3 to 5 says this. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby. Why? Because it was that baby that would deal the death blow to his head. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That detail is important because when he resurrected and ascended, that was the death blow to the dragon's head. 
Jesus believed in a true personality, Satan. 1 John 3.8, matter of fact, says this, the Son of God came. Here's the purpose of His becoming human. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus said this in John 8.44, the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of it. Matter of fact, at the end, to the church at Rome, I love the benediction that it gives. It says this in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, I want you to listen to Revelation 12, 9 to 11. And the great dragon was thrown down. The, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Who was the baby in the manger? The eternal son of God. But when John the Baptist sees him, what does he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That baby is a sacrifice for sin. That was the plan all along, all along. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, here's the importance of this, who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he came to crush Satan, but he also came to solve the brokenness and the sin problem that we all face. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only way to receive that forgiveness is through a sacrificial lamb. Not just any lamb or any sacrifice. For in Revelation chapter 5, we see two images side by side. It says this, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, talking about Jesus who came out of Judah, out of Bethlehem, the root of David, has conquered. And then in five verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 6, it says this, It goes from the lion image and then back to the lamb because it is so important. Listen to what it says. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, this is what John sees in a vision, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, complete and perfect power and knowledge, horns and eyes, a slain lamb, but he's no longer dead. I saw a lamb. As though it had been slain, but it's not anymore. In Revelation 17, verse 14, listen to what it says. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. See, God doesn't have to defeat Satan or evil by a show of force. He sends a baby in the image of a sacrificial lamb. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are call, who are called, faith, chosen, and faithful. And folks, and young people, and, this is, and, and we're done. This is a true story. This is a story where evil does not prevail or ultimately go unpunished, regardless of what you face or feel or have experienced. And normal people... And this is, this is why these stories are told. Normal, sane people are not hoping that Jadis or Sauron or Vader or Voldemort win. There's something in our hearts that desires a champion rescuer who ultimately wins. 
And do you know who that is? It, it was the baby in the manger. It is now Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. So we can have hope for the holidays because the baby born in the manger destroyed the devil. We can have peace over the holidays because the offer of peace with God is freely made through Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. We can know love this holiday because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish. And he says this, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him you might have life. And we can have joy this holiday because this is a true story and we already know how it ends. Read Revelation. Our hope is not that our family or us won't be harmed by evil or that tragedy won't happen at our doorstep or that justice will be served in full today. Our hope is that God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right and his mission is unfolding exactly as he intends it to unfold. Last verse. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, just like he came the first time. I want to show you Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming soon. I'm going to invite our music team forward, and we're going to put up here while they're coming forward and getting ready to sing to us in response to this. Revelation 10, verse 9. We're living between two comings or two advents. Let me read to you Revelation 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Safe. That's Merry Christmas. It's not a baby in a manger. It's not sentimentality. It is there is a divine, uncontested champion king who sits at the right hand of the Father right now waiting for his enemies to become his footstool who will return just as he said he would because he arrived just as God said he would the first time. Let's pray. God, we praise you. You are eternal, majestic God. Nothing is too hard for you. And you, the judge of all the earth, are doing what is right and will do what is right. Thank you for sending your son. Not just his humility and example, but for his victory over Satan, his obedience to you, his willingness to die in our place and for our sin, and for his resurrection. We praise you this morning as a good God whose promises will all be fulfilled, who sent your only Son to rescue us. Would you open spiritually blind eyes this morning, heal spiritually lame hearts this morning, bring new birth to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.